0: So thank you very much for organizing uh, this inspired um, and very um, topical and um, contemporary wonderful uh, discussion. Um, I'm so excited to be here with all of you, who um, you know each in your own way. I think bring um, very insightful and um, you know deep background to the conversation. Um, so we are going to go in turn. So I will just introduce um, each of us as we as we present. Um, so we're starting with Raina Lewis, uh, who's Professor of Cultural Studies at the London College of Fashion, um, University of Arts London. Um, I came uh, across a wonderful exhibition that she organized at the de Young Museum in San Francisco uh, and read about it, and I thought, what a fantastic um, and and really kind of ahead of its moment um, topic to explore um, in the Bay Area uh, all the way on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, She is, uh, I think, noticed and became very insightful about uh, Muslim and Islamic commercial fashion kind of earlier than uh, the rest of the world caught up with it. Um, She uh, is the author of some Gendering Orientalism, Contemporary Muslims, um, and I think a wide range of, of work that kind of looks at all these intersections of uh, you know, post-colonial politics, femininity, style, feminism, and you know, hopefully the kind of intersection of things we'll be talking about tonight. So I will turn it over to her first.
1: So fashion operates as a form of communication. This is true for all of us, regardless of whether we consider ourselves to be fashionable or not. How we dress and how we hold our body is read by those who observe us whether we like it or not. And however much we might give thought to how we dress and style ourselves, we can never control the way that others read us. And the example I like to give to explain this is, I teach at London College of Fashion. I might get all frocked up to go into work thinking I look really hip, and my students look at me pityingly, and I can see on the ticker tape of their brain, what is she like, but not in a good way. This is, (coughs) sorry, this is because dress is polysemic. It can have several different meanings at once, and it can mean different things to different people in different contexts. Dress is given meaning when it's worn on bodies. The same garment on an older or younger woman will read differently, as also with variables of visible ethnicity, size, or ability. In thinking about dress in the context of women, religion, and interfaith, I'm focusing today on how our dress presentation factors into how we become legible as religiously marked subjects to others. And by religiously marked, I would also include those who don't consider themselves to be religiously affiliated, who may be marked in that way as well. Thinking about this also involves thinking about the different knowledges that we bring to looking in terms of fashion and style. I might be competent, or rather I hope I am competent, to know what would suit a 50-something British professor, but I would not dream of buying a black T-shirt for my 16-year-old goth nephew. How would I know which black T-shirt was super cool and which one would bring about social death? And don't get me started on trainers. (laughs) The cultural and subcultural competencies that we deploy sometimes instinctively, sometimes after careful cultivation, factor into how we dress ourselves and how we read others. So when it comes to recognizing people's religious and religio-cultural affiliations through their dressed appearance, it's often the most overt signs of religious distinction that register first. To test this, I did a scientific experiment. I asked Google. I'm showing here a Google image search from this week for Muslim women, And you can see that the most overtly distinctive garment here is head covering and face covering. There's only one woman whose whose head is not covered. It tells a partial, this obviously doesn't tell the story of how all Muslim women dress. It tells a partial story of a type of religiously related dress that is adopted by some Muslim women. It also doesn't tell us that Muslim women who do wear a headscarf will do so for very different reasons. Muslim women may cover their hair and parts of their body for reasons of personal piety, personal spiritual development, to accommodate community convention as a social alibi, a way of reassuring parents or elders when they take a job away from home, or as a way of reclaiming a religious marker that has become so stigmatizing. Women who do wear a hijab, a headscarf, may wear it all the time, or some of the time, depending on where they are and who they're with. And like all women, regardless of their clothing, of whether their clothing is consciously related to religion or not, they will likely not cover themselves in exactly the same way their entire life. We all go through different phases of life, color trends come and go, styles change. When we see someone whose dress marks them out as religiously distinct, we may not have the cultural competencies to read from that the nuance of intra-religious distinction. For example, when observing the spectacularly visible head covering and styling of ultra-Orthodox or conservative Jewish women, it takes insider knowledge or research expertise to decode the small differences in type of wig or hat or headscarf or fascinator that distinguish followers of different rabbis or members of different sects or groups. But among the ultra-Orthodox or conservative Jewish communities, those distinctions matter deeply. To be Satmar is not the same as to be Bobovar, though they may have more in common with each other than with modern Orthodox Jews or with other Jews belonging to reform or progressive communities. In researching how religious identities are expressed and communicated through dressed appearance and body management, I include formal religious affiliations of all sorts, from ultra-Orthodox to progressive Jewish, from Catholic to Lutheran Christian. And I include religious affiliations that some might regard as heterodox, such as Ahmadi Muslims or Mormon members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This I think is especially important when we come to think about women and interfaith dialogue and more broadly about intercultural trust building. Not all religious identities are communicated through distinction in appearance. So part of the issue is to find ways to see, to recognize religious and religio-ethnic identities and positions that are not overtly obvious in order to foster wider inclusivity. Of course, being obvious can be a risk. In the UK, the most easily visible form of modest fashion in the last 20 years has been the growing numbers of young and now youngish Muslim women who cover their hair with a headscarf or hijab. As some of you will know from personal experience, Muslim women who cover their hair become immediately identifiable as Muslims and can face discrimination and risk as a result. So too do women who cover their hair for other reasons. Sikh women and men who wear turbans may face anti-Muslim prejudice or attack, which is another example of how the way that we think we're communicating something isn't necessarily legible to everyone who sees us. Being visible or even hyper-visible is not always a choice, but it can be used as a way to fight back against prejudice. My research found that after the 9-11 attacks in America in 2001, and again in the UK after the London bombs in 2005, many Muslim women in both countries consciously used fashion to communicate to others that they were part of Western modernity. Styling a headscarf with on-trend clothes in seasonal colors was a way to challenge a prevailing discourse of civilizational clash that regarded Muslims as oppositional to contemporary society, seeing them as a threat even, rather than regarding them as equally at risk from terrorist attack. At a time when some community leaders were advising women to leave off their headscarf if they felt in danger, women came to deploy fashion in which they were already participating as language on their bodies in the assertive expression of religious disposition. Like their non-Muslim peers, this generation, broadly now the under 45s, grew up with consumer culture with world music, world food, world fashion. They expect to use the commodities and services of globalized consumer culture to cultivate and articulate all components of their self, including their religious and spiritual values. Now, this is sometimes a significant attitudinal shift from a parental or grandparental generation who may have considered the market and consumption as inimical to religion and piety. Looking like what you are, this was my search for a Sikh woman, can bring advantages and dangers for women whose dress connects fashion and faith. If Muslim women who wear a headscarf in Western Muslim minority contexts are likely to be rendered hyper-visible to outgroup observers, being recognizable to co-religionists can bring welcome recognition and solidarity. This is true for Muslim women who more often receive a greeting of Assam Alaikum once their hair is covered, as also for Jewish women who cover their hair with a wig or a hat once they get married, and for Sikh women who are wearing a turban or other identificatory markers like the kara, the bracelet. But once you're visible to co religionists through dress and body management, It also inevitably triggers uninvited surveillance, including from the self-appointed guardians of women's morality. How women use fashion in the expression of religion and community can play a role in building interfaith and faith secular dialogue. Sometimes modest fashion commerce itself provides a route to negotiate intra and interfaith conflict i.e. within and between religious communities. When New York Jewish modest brand Mimu Maxi arranged a promo feature with a Muslim hijabi blogger, Summer Albak, so she's wearing one of their skirts, and she posted it on her social media, in July 2014, other Orthodox Jews took offense as tensions in Palestine rose. But the designers, Mimi Hecht and Mushki Notik, stood by their connection to the hijabi, and they used their Facebook page to speak out against their co-religionist critics, maintaining that the promotion of modesty was a mitzvah a Jewish value. They emphasized that discussions with their spiritual mentors and with each other had helped them realize, quote, that on a soul level, this is the best time, because this kind of collaboration and awareness is a huge component in fighting ignorance and hatred towards Jews. Summer Albach herself, with prior experience of interfaith initiatives, also held firm, maintaining, quote, that I wouldn't blame or tie my friends in the Jewish community to the tragedies in Israel or Palestine. I interviewed Hecht and Notek two years later and they had continued to seek out cross-faith interaction using their website StrapLine to advocate that, and this is a quote from their website, clothing can be a neutral territory that builds bridges and invites powerful connections. By sharing our traditions and spiritual style, we invite a revolution of women, whether Jewish, Muslim, or Christian, or no specific faith at all, to focus on the values we share. Regarding fashion as a conduit for change, they utilize the marketing logic of fashion social media to foster interfaith connectivity. Muslim women in 2016, for example, were invited to submit Eid selfies wearing their Mimumaxi Maxi garments, which were then posted on the brand's Instagram page. This effectively incorporates their social media followers into interfaith relationships so that commenting on a special Ramadan outfit becomes as normal a part of Jewish daily digital life as liking Mushki's Shabbat dinner recipe or a client's selfie at a bar mitzvah. But back to the media storm in 2014. When you look at this, and this was then being on HuffPost Live, I think it's obvious who Summer al Baq is as, well, first of all, her name is up, but she's the only woman on screen wearing a headscarf. Can you tell me which of the two Orthodox Jewish women, and which is not. Anyone? The yellow one, the one in the yellow dress, is what? Not. Okay. How do you know that? The cleav- the neckline is lower. The hair is real. Anyone else thinking that? She's showing her knees. Okay. So. Mimi and Noshki are wearing a wig or a scheitel in keeping with their Lubavitch community convention. But do we all have the cultural competency to spot a wig at 20 paces? Some do. If you wear one or you grow up with this community, then you can. It's a bit like having a gaydar for spotting people who are LGBTQ. It's often accurate, but not always. Some orthodox women wear wigs that are deliberately detectable. The point is that it shouldn't look like real hair. And others wear wigs that look at casual glance or to the non-expert as if it could be their own hair. And some women, like Mimi and Noshki, but perhaps not on screen here, they sometimes show about two fingers widths of their own hair falling around the face. And they told me that, quote, whilst it's not uncommon, and some people do this, others in their community, they said, would consider that it's not the best way to do it. These micro distinctions, these tiny differences, are not always legible to the external viewer. And if they are, they may be misunderstood or judged. Ask any Muslim woman who wears a headscarf and shows a little bit of hair, or who wears a turban wrap that shows her neck, and they'll tell you that judgment just rains down on them, or questions. British Muslim fashion influencer Dina Tokia, who rose to fame for her YouTube hijab tutorials, has faced down a storm of criticism for showing hair, as here on the left. Learning to understand these variations as an authentic part of religious expression is essential if people with a full range of religious experiences are to be regarded as legitimate dialogue partners. Rather than allowing the most conservative or most orthodox practices to be definitional, I suggest that the variations we see in religiously rated fashion, including women who do not and have never covered, in dressed, never covered or dressed in religiously overt ways, this can help open doors for wider inclusion. I find helpful approaches from the sociology of religion that emphasize the contradictoriness and syncretism of daily religion. As Meredith Maguire explains, and I'm quoting, each person's religious practices and the stories they use to make sense of their lives are continuously adapting, expanding or receding and ever-changing. And she says, may rarely be coherent. Well, that sounds like an excellent description of fashion to me. If we are to get beyond essentializing stereotypes and combat prejudice, We have to find ways to understand that how we present ourselves in the world and how we experience others is going to be marked by contradiction and change. Now this can make for challenging and also creative conversations. In the face of near constant attempts to legislate women's religious dress choices, the defense of women's right to choose how to present their bodies has itself become a focus of intercultural and interfaith activity. Women from diverse religious, spiritual and secular backgrounds work together to protect dress rights, sometimes finding themselves protecting practices that they personally consider unnecessary or unhelpful. In this light, women's interfaith and intercultural activism shows courage in handling challenges between and within communities. Status within the cross-cultural modest fashion community depends on spiritual and political integrity, as well as on style smarts. To work with a cohort committed defending, to defending women's rights to choose if and how to cover and not cover, researchers and community members, as well as third sector and government actors, must build connections based on trust that don't imperil the reputation of those whose influence they seek. Within this, it's crucial, I think, to keep open the door for new representatives. It's not enough to install a load of hijab wearing women in your organization, and think that Muslim women's experiences are fully represented. I do want to challenge the tendency to privilege men and elders, and to privilege conservative over reform and progressive religious affiliations. So by way of encouragement, here is last week's Google search for women and interfaith images. LCF's faith and fashion talks are open to everyone. So do please sign up on the sheet over there if you'd like to be notified of events or podcasts. Far from being frivolous, fashion can tell us important things about how we exist in the world and can, despite many sensitivities, be a conduit for connection. It's these connections I look forward to exploring with today's panelists and with all of you. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Reyna. Um, we are now moving to Kristin Ona, uh, who is a sociologist who is now at Coventry University. Um, she uh, works on youth and theology, is the author of books that deal with uh, the challenges of feminism and in a, in a secular era. And, um, and I hope that we will be hearing about uh, the challenges, um, exactly those things.
2: Good evening. Um, it's it's wonderful to be here. I've known about the Wolf Institute for um, for, for quite a few years now, um, and this is the first chance I've had to visit it. So thank you so much, Leah, for the invitation. So embodiment, of course, is part of how people live out their religious or spiritual lives, um, and as sociologists of religion, we can look at it by looking. Um, sort of directly at dress, so what are they doing with their dress? Um, Or we can look at how people live their religious lives and then where does dress and embodiment figure. Um, So, I'm going to do that today, that way round, and focus particularly on feminists, so how feminists live religio-spirituality. So... And this comes from a study that I conducted um, a few years ago with um, 30 feminists, so semi-structured interviews with 30 UK-based feminists. Um, And out of that, um, I identified three characteristics of um, their approaches to religion and spirituality. Um, So they are that they are de-churched, they are relational, and they emphasise practice. Uh, and these features, I, I argue, calls for a new approach um, to feminist relationship with religion and spirituality. So I propose that we see feminist spirituality as lived religion in its various forms. Um, and I've published this, if anyone's interested in reading more, um, in the journal Gender and Society a couple of years ago. So embodiment, dress, jewellery, etc. Are, are part of that. So if, as I'm talking, if you you look out... Uh, for where they figure um, in the examples from the women. So, scholars often connect the term religion with institutions. They see spirituality as more individualistic, fitting better with late modernity. I think that is unhelpful, that dichotomy analytically, and it doesn't reflect how people practise their religion and spirituality. or or their religio-spiritual lives. So I think we need to bring these together and see these as one phenomena of lived religion. So something briefly about the research context. So um, there's been quite a lot of feminist uh, writing or sociological work on religion and gender focusing on... Um, equating feminism with secularism and with secularization. Um, and generally speaking, second wave feminist scholars often ignored or rejected femin- uh, religion as being oppressive to women um, because of various um, secularist assumptions. And of course, that recently has been critiqued um, by scholars including Sabah Mahmoud, um, Neve Riley, Rosie Braidotti. And these secularist assumptions also uh, shaped the formation of secularization. Theory which says that modernity brings about the demise of religion first for men and then for women who, um, from the 60s, threw off um, the traditional forms of religious femininity. Another theme in the literature that's quite common um, equates feminism with new age or holistic spirituality, Um, and that's the form of religion that there's been quite a lot of feminist writing about. So, um, from Carol Christ's 1978 conference address, Why Women Need the Goddess. Has anyone read that classic um, essay? It's a really good one to read if you, if you haven't. I recommend it. Um, feminist spirituality spread through a range of pagan, Wiccan, goddess-focused spirituality. So, there's quite a lot of work on that. Um, and then there is a, a little bit of work on religiously-based feminisms. Um, where we see that feminists can use religious resources to challenge inequalities within their own religions. Um, But now I want to get straight to the um, interviews and show you some data. So this uh, study built on um, a study I published in the journal Feminist Review in 2011 um, that analysed data from a survey of um, nearly 1,300 uh, people involved in new forms of feminism that had emerged since the year 2000 in the UK. Um, so, then subsequently, I did uh, semi structured interviews with 30 participants who were drawn from that sample, and these sort of aimed to represent the, the patterns within the survey data. Um, Discuss various themes, such as the ones on the slide, uh, with them it, it, in an attempt to say, well, how do we understand their approaches to religion and spirituality? What do these things um, have in common? So, the first characteristic um, that I identified of feminist. Religious spirituality is that it is de-churched. Um, now, that's a bit of a weird term, um, and it's ac- accurate, I think, actually, um, much more accurate than words like de-institutionalized or de-Christianized. Um, so in, in childhood, two-thirds of the interview participants were involved in some way with church, so... Um, it might be that there, um, as in the example of my interview with Gabriella, her family were Italian Catholics, so it was very much in the foreground of her, of her childhood. Um, and I won't read the, the quotes out, but you can, you can see them there. Um, but then she decided to dispense with uh, religion. She didn't think that she believed it anymore. Or for some, it was part of the backdrop. So they went to a um, a, a, a religious religious school. So um, Karen's mother worked at a um, Catholic school. Um, Her her family wasn't really religious, but there was a sense in which Christianity was part of uh, this childhood through religious education. But by adulthood, um, all of them had dissociated themselves from um, the church uh, and actually none attended um, anymore regularly. Christianity remained in the self-descriptions of only three of um, the interviewees. Spiritual practices were important, but they did not require ties um, with the church. So, uh, for some, it was because they no longer believed. Um, You know, they'd lost their their faith, Um, but a a lot of them associated church with school. So, leaving school, they didn't look for a church because church had simply been part of their schooling and it wasn't anything else um, for them. Some of them looked back on their childhood Christianity as as a positive thing, um, others as a negative thing. Um, So one interviewee, Tamara, uh, was raised by humanist ex-Christian parents. Um, She had turned to church as a child to explore her uh, spiritual feelings. Uh, Her parents opposed her church-going, interestingly. She persevered, but then um, she came to feel that her pagan views were incompatible with Christianity. Um, and there was various bits of conflict with her parents. She, she stopped going to church, um, and she started calling herself a pagan, but she said she has very strong spiritual feelings. Another example um, is Harriet. She was more organized with organized religion during her adolescence um, because she had um, gone to church because her parents wanted her to go to um, a high-ranking school in the local area, which was linked to a church, <laughs> and that is, you know, a, fa- a fairly um, well-known phenomenon in, in the UK. So she developed through making friends a Christian spirituality, um, but she was critical of the church. Um, Then there were two women uh, who identified as Muslim. Um, One had distanced herself from some Islamic practices um, as she became older. Um, But of course, religious observance for for, for Muslims, particularly for women, is is less focused around the mosque. So it's kind of different from this focus on attending church um, for, for Christians. So stopping going to mosque doesn't perhaps have the same significance as stopping going to church. Okay, so second characteristic. Feminist spiritualities are relational. So women's movement away from the church was a a movement that was embedded within relational networks, so friends, so um, family, for instance. Childhood socialization into religion is incredibly powerful. However much people say they choose their religion, actually, mostly they don't choose their religion, as I'm sure um, uh, everyone here is aware. Um, And, of course, religiosity is strengthened or or weakened in relational networks, so friends, family, intimate partners. Um, To give you an interesting example of um, that, so um, a participant called uh, Deborah was an Anglican as a child um, at university. Her Anglicanism was uh, challenged uh, and it was sparked by a conversation about religious jewelry. So this is when um, some examples of embodiment start to start to come in. So she says, um, "I was in my first year at university. I used to wear a crucifix on a chain. It was a piece of jewelry. A friend of mine went on this big rant about organized religion and how it was really bad. Um, and I was just like, "Well, it's just a cross on a chain. I just wear it because it's pretty." And he was like, hmm, I'm not sure about that." And that was one of the first time times I started thinking, hmm, okay, and being more open to other ways of thinking. So it's interesting that you know this this whole thing was sparked by this piece of jewelry and this reaction to this piece of jewelry, um, and she became more more sceptical. Um, in this context sexual partners were really important conversation partners um, and this seemed to be particularly so for the lgbtq participants who were about half of the sample and actually that was representative of the whole um, sample of feminists which is which is very interesting Um, third characteristic i want to mention is that these spiritualities emphasize practice Um, so it's about what you do with um, your body about postures, about dress, diet, jewelry, um, etc. cetera. So, um, to give you an example from Aisha. So, she was Muslim, um, daughter of Pakistani parents, so um, a Muslim mother and a communist father. She said she had a strong faith in God. Um, she still does an, as an adult, but she engages in Islamic practices less since her second marriage to a Catholic man. She says that her adult children are more religiously observant than she is, but her daily life accords with uh, many Islamic behavioural codes, so she neither drinks alcohol nor um, eats non-halal food. She dresses, as she said, conservatively. She wears a locket inscribed with an Arabic prayer. She celebrates Ramadan with her friends and family. Um, And when asked if she attends mosque, um, she she said this, I wouldn't go regularly. Um, I don't get my prayer mat out, but I don't know if it's, it's a habit. There are certain prayers you say quietly all the time. So he talks about praying um, before she goes to, to, to sleep. And the idea about, of religion as habit is really interesting as well. Um, part of somebody's habitus, these deep-rooted dispositions governing um, actions. And, and this is something that, that uh, her, her response raises. And as um, Sabah Mahmoud argues, the role of habitus needs to be examined when looking at women's religiosity. Um, Another example comes from Beth. So Beth was raised Roman Catholic. She had a strong childhood faith. She wanted to be a nun. Uh, She developed socialist views as a teenager um, and rejected the church's stance on abortion, which was the beginning of her um, slight distancing of herself from um, traditional Catholicism. She went at university to a Christian group, but she felt that their views about women were, um, were, were too traditional and sort of anti-women. Um, and so she became distant from, from the church, but she still um, identifies as Catholic. She attends confession occasionally. She does the rosary. Um, Christian art and music move her. She sings hymn, hymns whilst doing the housework. Um, she talked about a poem. I don't, some of you may have read it called Kay, um, by Kaylin Hort, called God Says Yes to Me. Has anyone come across that poem? It's, it's worth looking up. Um, it's a very sort of positive, um, positive uh, view of, of God celebrating um, femininity. And she talks about valuing rituals and the symbols and the crosses. Um, one other example came from a Buddhist Anglican, Melanie. Um, so she was in her... I think she's in her mid-50s and she fused Anglicanism with Buddhism. She'd had a strong childhood connection to to Christianity. She was christened. Um, She came out at university as a lesbian and then abandoned Christianity as patriarchal. She later became interested in Judaism um, and her Jewish friends encouraged her to return to church, interestingly. Her female partner's father was Buddhist, um, so she started um, becoming interested in Zen Buddhist meditation. Um, and she also attended church regularly. So, she has this interesting combination of Buddhism and, um, and Christianity. She likes the vicar at church, but she's disappointed because she feels that they don't practice religion proper, properly. So, um, she says that, uh, the, the quote's at the top, um, my vicar's clear about it doesn't matter whether you go to church or not. Um, For me, it's about the everyday, how we treat each moment of every day, how we treat each other. I like that word practice because that's all you do. You're practicing. Practice, practice, practice. I'm not a Buddhist or a Christian. I'm practicing. Very interesting. There are also three pagan or alternative spirituality practitioners who emphasize ritual and daily practice, so making a sacred space Um, At home, an altar or garden, wearing special jewellery. So, um, Anya's owl necklace represented the goddess Athena. Uh, Sandy wore a goddess ring, celebrating uh, pagan festivals. Sonia had rejected uh, Christianity for paganism in her teens. She practiced paganism as an earth-based spirituality with magic and witchcraft, and she practiced uh, spell work as you can see from um, the quotation on uh, the slide. So, this focus on action, not belief, or not just belief, is really, really important for these feminists. So, what does this mean, then, theori- theoretically? What would I argue that it means? Um, well, I think the existing feminist literature, perhaps this does speak to in some ways, So it does show a movement away from institutional religion. So you could say this demonstrates feminist secularisation. Um, you could also say it demonstrates the rise of holistic spiritualities amongst feminists. Um, but I, I don't think that's the whole story because I think there's a really complicated sort of weaving of um, you know history, tradition, um, current practice, rituals, relationships, and what. Women in feminists, particularly, are doing with religion and spirituality. Um, so I would call these lived religion. Um, and I was interested, Rena, that you mentioned um, Meredith Maguire's um, analysis of everyday lived religion because this is this is some of the work that I um, would draw on as well. And this body of work by people um, like Hall, um, like McGuire, like Mer- uh, like Mary Jane Nice, um, who talked about who talk about how. Um, lived religion is about the everyday. It's a term for distinguishing the everyday actual experiences of religious people from the prescribed religion of institutionally defined beliefs and practices. And the practice of religion is really, really important um, for, these, for these theorists. And these practices take, take place across multiple settings, including dress, Um, and embodiment. It's not just about, do you go to a religious institution? Do you read a sacred text, for example? Um, But it's about daily practice and it's about dress as well. So, to conclude, for the feminists that I interviewed, religion and spirituality are complex. Some of them saw institutionalized uh, spiritualities, particularly Christianity, as restrictive or oppressive. Some thought holistic or pagan spirituality was a better alternative, but they did not tell a simple story of movement um, from institutional religion to an individualized uh, or holistic spirituality. They experienced spirituality in much more complex um, ways. They were embedded in their childhoods, their relationship networks, even while for the atheists particularly, they were something to define themselves against or sources of family conflict. Practice was important to their spirituality. In other words, religion and spirituality were lived. So, to conclude, um, I argue that feminist spirituality is lived religion. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Kristen, now we have Leah Tarragon-Zeller who is a research fellow at the Wolf Institute who is the inspiration behind um, the whole conversation and how um, I think elegantly it's been put together. Um, She does uh, research at the university, publishes widely, um, serves as Jewish chaplain here, um, and will be speaking to
3: you. So thank you both so much. I'm so excited to hear you speak and I'm just so happy that we brought us together for a conversation because there's so much to learn um, from each other, um, so I want to take us um, away from the UK and actually away from women, and speak a little about teenagers in Israel. Um, and and I say teenagers because there's something about the research on gender and religion that has tended to focus on women, and for a really good reason. It's really hard to get access to teenagers for many ethical reasons. Um, but regardless of those, and I won't bore you with the ethics of this. Um, I'm a social anthropologist, and um, one of my first research projects was about modesty in a Beis Yaakov seminary in Israel. Beis Yaakov is the flagship education for the ultra-Orthodox community all over the world and also in Israel. And what I want to share with you today is some of the um, tensions um, that ultra-Orthodox teenagers, particularly female teenagers, had in terms of modesty and beauty. Um, and yeah, so I wanted to start just by a little bit of, um, you know, instead of a big literature review, I just brought some pictures. Um, so these are a few books that were very, very, very central in giving a more nuanced account to the way religious women make decisions about their bodies and about the way they get dressed. Um, so Beyond the Veil by Fatima Mernissi, I assume some people will be familiar with. Laila abu um Saba Mahmoud, who Kristen already mentioned, who I'm sure we're going to continue to mention today, and Tamar al here in the Hebrew, who worked on the Jewish context um, in Israel. And I think that many of these um, scholars were really, really, really interested in um, what Saba Mahmoud talks about, the paradox between religion and freedom, particularly through um, the veil, which was something um, that feminist scholarships were really, really, really struggling with. Um, and yeah, you're laughing already, so I think you got the jokes. But I think um, the picture on the, on the bottom left really shows us this idea um, that instead of an evolution going in the right direction, the idea of women still participating in um, traditions that we would see, I say we, I don't know who that we is anymore, um, but the way Western um, scholarships has tended to look at um, modesty and practices of covering the body as um, areas of, um, of subordination is something um, that a lot of these um, scholars have worked with. And I think that Sabah Mahmoud has become really known as, as the famous um, uh, thinker about this, even though a lot of people were saying similar things. And I think that what she basically is trying to say is that um, in her work as a social anthropologist, she says, you know, we've come to share this idea that women are intrinsically supposed to object to practices and values that are embodied by the Islamic movement. Um, And she casts doubts on the following liberal points of departure, and she makes us really think about the idea that self-fulfillment is equated with the ability to realize an authentic self, that actions of an individual are only considered his or her own if they emanate from personal desire rather than a custom, tradition, or a social norm, and that every person wants to be free of submissive relations, not least women in patriarchal societies. And I think as an ethnographer, she did a really good job to make us rethink these assumptions and, and think about the idea that maybe women would like um, to, um, to realize an authentic self while still retaining um, the practices, as Kristen um, kind of defined them, um, that come from customs or from religions. Um, and what happened after this kind of, I like to think about it of the Mahmoudi Mahmoodian turn, is that people started thinking about modesty as something that is legible um, in, in Western um, eyes. But my humble opinion as well is that so many of these studies have focused on modesty um, and show choice and control as, um, as something that we can um, take seriously, that some of it has also put to aside some of the other thoughts, desires, Um, and aspirations that religious women have. We fought so hard to show that modesty is okay, that we've kind of turned a very black and white picture about choice and focusing on modesty um, so clearly. So what I want to try to do today is complicate it a little bit by looking at Haredi teenagers and see a bit of rebellion, um, which I don't think is, um, I really think is is, is probably the usual um, case. So I take us um, to Israel It's extremely hard to find pictures of ultra-Orthodox female Jews. Um, On the left is a typical picture of ultra-Orthodox Jews. In Hebrew, you would use the word which means to tremble in front of God. So the intercommunal um, communication would use but scholars tend to use ultra-Orthodox Jews. And on the cover of Ayala Fader's book, which I love and deeply recommend, called Mitzvah Girls, we can see basically the people that I was interviewing in Beis Yaakov. So the school that I was at, they were wearing, um, instead of these plaited um, skirts, um, just regular um, dark um, blue skirts. Um, but basically, um, I bring this picture also to talk about embodiment a tiny bit before I go into um, some of my research findings. And I want to say that in Judaism, religious embodiment has actually tended to be much more male than it has been female. When you think about the religious garments um, that men use, so men wear a kippah, a skull cap. Um, this is a Hasidic Jew who also has a special hat that he would put on the Sabbath or on special um, holidays. Um, this particular um, Hasidic um, Jew also has a bekashe, um which he's wearing on top of his clothes. Um, you can see that Jewish men also have uh, these dreadlocks as well. So it's very visibly um, that they're religious. And the woman, the mother in this picture, is wearing um, a hat. Men, when they pray, they also have a talus that they wear and um, tzitzit, and there's a, many more garments, actually, for men. And I think the thinking about the way um, um, religious women come to it is important because historically, actually, if you look at Jewish sources, you'll find that there are many more Jewish laws about what men wear than about what women wear, which might be a little bit surprising. Um, but what I basically did is I went into uh, a Beysiakov seminary. I'm happy to answer questions about how I got in, but not right now. Um, and yeah, because that will take more than the time I have. Um, I did 20 interviews with students that I met um, in these classrooms, as well as with um, 10 interviews with um, teachers. And I also was very, very lucky um, to start my fieldwork when one of the students in the seminary had started snoot gatherings, which I would call modesty evenings, because she felt that the school was not doing enough education in terms of modesty. So they wanted to strengthen themselves even more. So I got to go to the structural classes that would have an also to these evenings in which a typical evening would be a guest speaker and then um, the girls would decide how they want to offer a particular practice, how to get better in modesty, for example, to button all the way up um, on their um, stuff or other things. So she suggests that and usually they dance together and have dinner. Um, Yeah. So um, I also did a lot of textual analysis, but I won't bore you with that tonight. Um, So what I want to try to say is that my findings, um, which I will try to share with you today, um, show different and conflicting social and cultural forces that influence Haredi girls' ideologies, thoughts, and emotions, and practices. On the one hand, the girls aspire to ideals of feminine piety, rooted in canonical texts as they interpret them. But on the other hand, they show a deep desire to fulfill current secular ideals of beauty, materialism, and consumption. In addition, the girls criticize authority while creating their spiritual ideal and therefore dismiss traditional ideas of modesty in order to prevent the male gaze. So um, I've coined this modesty for heaven's sake. And this is what Rifki said to me, a a teenager that I spoke to. She said, you know, we're told a lot that if a girl walks a certain way and a man sees her, he could get punished for failing. So do you want to take that on your conscience? But you know what? That disturbs me. I mean, come on. In addition to the things I need to be careful for myself, I need to be responsible for him as well. Now, I say this because this type of a discourse is very, very critical of the dominant discourse within um, the ultra-Orthodox community, in which the reason women need to walk around so modestly is because if a man sees them, he could get punished for failing. Now, failing could mean looking at a different part of the body that they're not supposed to look at, having a sinful thought, etc. So for a teenager to say, you know, that's not the reason that I'm willing to do this is actually very, very critical of a very widespread opinion um, in her community. And um, what, I, what I watched very interestingly is how these teenagers created a different ideology in which modesty turns into the woman's spiritual ideal, one which encompasses all parts of her life and creates a special, an intimate relationship between her and God. Now, this is really important because traditionally, women's role would be having children at home, letting their husband go and study at the yeshiva. For her to say that her ideal for female piety is through modesty is quite controversial um, and and very, very creative. And the definition um, that is given to kind of support this idea by the girls and their teachers is the superiority of their inner worlds. Um, To to explain modesty, the the girls and their teachers begin with describing the secular world as a world that is very materialistic, I'm quoting, in which you are what you wear. In contrast, the girls describe their inner world as a place where God dwells, a place where God is always with them. In addition, because they explain that God is always with them, they do not need social approval from other people to make them feel like they exist. Their existence comes from the inside, from their inner work. As Mrs. Miller explains, and I'm quoting her, God knows the depth of my soul. The fact that he knows this is what gives me the strength not to externalize myself for others. I am with God. He knows, and that is all I need. So I want us to move now um, to the realm of beauty. And um, most of the teenagers that I spoke to um, told me that they really aspired to look good. And they described the different ways in which they try to realize this aspiration, through shopping, makeup, working out, But they also revealed that it's really hard to satisfy this aspiration because it's quite hard to find clothing. As Yael put it, everything looks more beautiful when it's less modest. So one after the other, they described endless attempts, finding clothes, altering clothing at private seamstresses, all so that they could look both good and modest. During interviews with teachers, their teachers would tell me how They shared how much they were disturbed by these um, aspirations. According to them, this beauty ideal is problematic because of the secular idealization of materialism and consumption that is at the core of their belief system. I'm quoting Mrs. Schwartz here, who says, the world teaches people to see their bodies as the most important, and girls are very much influenced by this. They won't tell you that they are. Their ears are gentle enough, Baruch Hashem. So they won't say it explicitly, yes, I'm here for my body. But all of their actions show that they really are. How much energy do they put into getting a skirt, makeup, haircuts, and shoes? A girl can walk around for hours for just one item of clothing that she will use for two weeks, maybe two months, and then will never leave her shelf again. So the teacher sees her job as trying to fix these backward ideals about materialism, beauty, and consumption. And therefore, they create an alternative ideology. And what's really interesting is that these teachers will make sure that the girls understand that um, attending to their body is actually really important. And what I saw in Beis Yaakov is that the teachers defined beauty as a natural inclination for every woman. And what was really interesting to see is that they had to go to canonical texts and redefine them to work with this type of idea. Um, So I'm quoting here one of the teachers who says, there's a Midrash, a Jewish text about the creation of Eve that explains that God braided Eve's hair. In the beginning, he brought her covered with blood and bodily fluids, and Adam didn't want her. So God decided to beautify her and braided her hair. We can see from this how importance the Torah attributes to women's beauty. And what was really interesting to me as well is that the teachers would tell me that they understood that beauty is so important to their students that they would go shopping and think, what are the students going to think if they see me wearing XYZ? um, it wasn't only an ideology that they could promote in the classroom. They had to change their own attire to live up to these beauties' ideals um, that they were um, creating. And um, kind of before I end, I want to say that what I find really interesting about this is that Aylaz Fader, um, in, in her book, Mitzvah Girls, that I showed earlier, she shows really interestingly how in the American context, Hasidic women practiced secular beauty and consumption ideals through the elevation of Judaism. And what she shows is that Um, they use this um, Lurianic, Kabbalistic idea of uplifting sparks, that when they go shopping and they make something Jewish by wearing it, they uplift the sparks. But what's really interesting about that type of strategy is that the secular and the Jewish stay as distinct categories, and you're just elevating the secular by purchasing it and wearing it as a Jewish woman. But in my case, it was much more different, because what I'd like to emphasize here is that they accept the materialistic practices They take the secular ideal of consumption and of materialism in itself and make it Jewish, which is a very, um, very different um, strategy. And one of the things that I found really interesting as well is that um, part of the redefinition of beauty is that they would direct different practices to different spheres. And um, this is what Mrs. Cohen says um, to a classroom of, of, of women, and she says, I guess they weren't women at the time, but today they are. Um, and so she says, are cobwebs pretty? And everybody in the classroom gets very un- unsettled. And she says, why not? Because you're thinking about cobwebs in the corner of your living room. It really is gross. But let's say they were out in the nature between the rocks, and I'm walking with my children. And I want to show them how much intelligence there is in, in nature, how much intelligence God has given to such a small creature, how wonderful it is, how much beauty there is in a cobweb. Because beauty is when it is in its natural place. So when you go outside with loud clothing, with makeup, with perfume, that, and you attract eyes that are not yours, it's like having a cobweb in your living room. It's only because it's in the wrong place. The Torah asks you to look nice, to use makeup and other things, but in the place that it is destined for. So what these cobwebs, and you cannot think about Mary Douglas and matter out of place when you hear this, but what she's really trying to do is to direct different types of desires in different places and I think it's such a genius thing and what I've understood and when I've analyzed these materials is that What they do is is that beauty is supposed to be really really important But only inside the home for the eyes of their husbands And I have went to all these different bridal classes and when say say when a husband comes home You have to beautify yourself. So it doesn't make a difference what you did all day long Make sure that you're beautiful when your husband comes home, but to the eyes of the world beauty should not be The factor, the term that they use is respectability. For the eyes of the world, you must always look respectable. You need to put a lot of effort into being respectful, but respectable. But beauty is only to the eyes of your husband and at home. And beauty outside is like a cobweb. Um, So just to to finish up here, um, what I'm trying to show here with these different things is to try to problematize a little bit this idea that religious women in modesty um, live beautifully without other forms of tension. And what we can see is that um, the (coughs) girls that I was speaking to have many different types of desires. They would like to be beautiful, they'd also like to be um, modest, and they really live in tension with these different things. And I think that their teachers understand it and pretty creatively look back at canonical sources to try to create an ideology that can work and live in different um, directions. And it's by directing them to the correct spheres and the correct times, that they can actualize all these different desires that they have amongst themselves. And what I'm really trying to show here is how Haredi women um, criticize the traditional roles that are given to them through rereading and reinterpreting the text. And I just have to end um, with these photos um, for a very, very important reason, because um, it's very hard to find images The image um, for the men is um, The New Black. It's a new TV series um, in Israel. Please Google it if you have not seen it yet. I bring this because I've only spoken about women today. But of course, um, men have a different set of of things that they need to live up to. And this um, on the side is, again, two women wearing wigs that may not be obvious to everyone. Um, But this fashion is something um, that is very, very um, very obvious when you look at the ultra-Orthodox community, it's not always what you'll find online. Um, But in their lives, what I'm trying to show is that fashion is important to them, modesty is important to them, beauty is important to them, but they learn how to direct these desires in different places because all of those desires exist in them just like they exist in any any other um, person, I think, in this room. Thank you.
0: Um, thank you so much, Leah. Um, that was really fascinating, and I was especially taken by the metaphor of the cobweb, um, because I thought um, you know, Islam had exhausted all the metaphors, pearl and a shell, and um, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, in more contemporary times, lollipop without a wrapper. And, um, it's oh, always <laughs> It's
3: always I can add a few more. Metaph-
0: mm-hmm. uh, exciting to encounter a new <laughs> modesty metaphor. Um, so I'm only going to um, kind of contribute uh, briefly um, because I'd like us to have enough time to have uh, a discussion amongst ourselves and then later um, broaden it out because I'm sure you'll have questions um, and I'm sure we're interested to hear your thoughts as well. Um, I will contribute. Um, just a little bit from my personal experience um, you know, as a reporter and a writer dealing with uh, women in Islam and kind of growing up uh, with the political legacy as an Iranian in which women's dress um, was so contested and had to signify so many other things beyond personal uh, spiritual journeys, you know, meditations about modesty and, and really um, you know, I think all of us are sort of, all of you are, are, are reflecting on how this question of, of, of dress and piety um, is very much a kind of interior, reflects an interior space and a kind of con- constant um, engagement with an outer space and whether it's a feminist movement or, or a community uh, that an individual feels incredibly um, committed and entrenched within and loyal to. Um, You know, in in the Middle East, I think at least since the mid 20th century, um, for women especially, dress has been um, a a constant kind of marker of um, contestation with the state. So um, I don't know if you've all sort of ever seen, there's this kind of current on the internet that shows us images of Kabul in the 50s and 60s, or Tehran um, back when everyone was wearing very fashionable you know, Dior and 60s um, kind of fashions um, as, a, as a kind of nostalgia for an era where you know, we are, I think, asked to believe or signaled to believe that women were more empowered. Um, and these photos have great currency and, and you know behind them is, is probably a very stark reality in which a very small margin of elite women had access to education or any kind of opportunities to really better themselves and have agency in their lives um, apart from a very tiny sphere that looked and dressed like that. Um, so this is the kind of world that I was born into. I was born in, in the mid-1970s um, and kind of grew up thinking about, being veiled um, as something that marked your politics, really, rather than um, your personal story, whether your mother wore the veil or your grandmother wore the veil. It was something that reflected um, kind of your attitude towards the Iranian government and whether uh, you supported the Shah and the whole kind of history of Western relations with the Middle East um, or believed in a kind of independence or, um, or kind of challenge to that. Um, so in the late 70s, you know, dress amongst very secular and educated women in Iran, veiling and dressing more modestly, wearing um, kind of what started to be really a cloak that would come down to your knees became a kind of political uniform of very educated women um, as, a, as a kind of form of dissent. Um, and then after the revolution in which you know Islamists took over, and we know the whole Khomeini legacy, um, you know, a revolution that women took great part in. And I think this is something that's mirrored in the Arab Spring uprisings. Um, women kind of participated in a great political upheaval, um, signaled their positioning through their, through their dress and through the religious kind of um, conservatism of their dress, expecting to be kind of given a seat at the negotiating table or a role in what happened next and, and found that that, didn't, um, that opportunity wasn't afforded them at all. Um, this is something that, as a reporter, uh, I became a foreign correspondent covering the Middle East um, you know in the late '90s. I saw everywhere too that young Egyptian women, you know, I first started reporting in Cairo, um, were, universe- not universally, but you know, markedly veiled. and in very many times, I would go over to their houses and I would see that their mothers weren't. And I was really struck by how a young, very educated generation of young Egyptian women were wearing the headscarf as a kind of. Identity, I think, protests to very repressive and poor governance in, in the hands of you know a secular dictatorship, as we now see it. Um, so again, you know, another young generation of women um, choosing to signal something very different with their dress and with the choice to veil, or you know, even to be extremely modest in uh, in Tunisia after the Arab Spring. Um, you know, I work there over the last few years kind of looking at what happened to women in a lot of these post-Arab spring uh, countries women had started wearing the niqab which is of course the face veil um, as part of a very radical movement that felt like the the uh, 2011 uprising hadn't been radical enough that there were a lot of demands still for women that the kind of entrenched police brutality and repressiveness hadn't been challenged enough Um, and you know there were great concerns about this all around because of course you know I think as much as we have so many kind of comfortable conversations um, and, and talk about the hijab or just a simple headscarf as something um, that's reflective of religious values that we can tolerate or that are somehow not related to violence I think the the full face veil kind of falls in a sphere that many are uncomfortable with and many even within you know Middle Eastern societies so that was another um, kind of reflection of Uh, a Middle East even in the 21st century where um, not only does women's Personal choice of of how to cover and, and to what extent their kind of modesty and their piety reflects their politics, but also reflect a reflector of really complicated geopolitics. Because you know, if you were to ask a Tunisian secularist, feminist, you know, what does this mean that you see the niqab in the streets of your cities, they would say, Well, this is Saudi money. This is not our culture, this is a kind of petrodollar um, kind of Tradition that's being exported by, you know, a Wahhabi state uh, that brings with it some very disturbing attitudes um, about pluralism, about tolerance of Sufis and different sects of Muslims, and um, is something that comes, um, you know, in a way artificially grafted. So, you know, again, uh, political dynamics, rivalries, you know, in a region that are intimately connected with Western policies that somehow trickle down um, in the lives of generation after generation of young women in the Middle East uh, who are are kind of speaking about about other things, about access to education and um, wanting to be able to be politically active, but very often reflective of, of, of doing that in a way that is oppositional to the state. So in Iran, if the state is Islamist and, you know, enforces a version of Islamic law, then opposition to it will be immodest. You know, the immodesty will be the voice of rebellion. Um, whereas if you're dealing with dictatorships or repressive regimes that are nominally secular, even though you know, whether their laws are actually quite secular is separate, uh, being very covered, being very modest to the point of being modest enough that in a way that dismays your parents wearing a full face veil is politically challenging. Um, so I guess just to kind of widen widen it out to, to look at these overarching grand political dynamics as something that's a backdrop to women's choice, community choice, family choice, all the way up to um, you know to the state. Um, I'll say really quickly, I was struck um, I, I worked on the appeal of ISIS to young women. Um, this is a subject in my last book and Something that really um, was fascinating to me as I began to research these young girls—I um, don't know if you remember those uh, East London girls who were very early um, kind of recruits or were groomed to go to ISIS—and um, as I researched, um, a pattern revealed that a, a lot of these women from London who would go, like the night before they left, they would go shopping at Westfield um, in Stratford, and they would buy makeup and they would buy clothes, and you know, this was a kind of, kind of. Journey that they took and how to navigate their modesty um, was part of it. And interestingly, you know, ISIS itself and, and other insurgent groups that I research now, Boko Haram in, in Nigeria, Al Shabaab in Somalia, they're very aware, um, kind of savvy disturbingly savvy about how challenging it is for young Muslim women in the West to navigate uh, their piety against how their piety will be perceived. Um, And a lot of the rhetoric and the propaganda or the the political messaging, as you'd like to call it, of these groups um, preys on precisely these vulnerabilities. So some of the ISIS messaging to young women um, kind of played off of makeup advertising, like L'Oreal makeup advertising. a lot of it underscored that you know, that there was space for young Muslim women from the West to go to the caliphate and there they could, they could be feminist but be covered and be accepted, that there was space for them um, to fit as, as a covered, believing, modest woman who Genuinely still wanted to be active in in society and that's a category that isis kind of tried to convince a lot of young women uh, That couldn't exist for them in the West because they would be rejected by Western feminists who really insisted on the secular Um, which is why I was um, So interested in in what you've all been saying about uh, modesty and modest fashion as a kind of um, Interfaith or interculture um, kind of bridge and conversation Um, and also, I was um, kind of struck, Leah, by your description of, of these of these young teenagers trying to interpret from themselves what that means, because I think that for many religious young women, there really is a feeling that this commercial modest fashion um, also preys on them in a way, and that it's very difficult to consume, um, but to retain the kind of true value of modesty that your religion prescribes for you, um, and and this is certainly a debate amongst young Muslim women, um, and I'm afraid it's given rise to the term the Hojabi, um, <laughs> that uh, I, I wonder if, if this is something you've heard. Um, it's a it's a very kind of derogatory way I think of, and we'll talk about this, and this is something I'd like to ask all of you about, is how young women police each other's modesty as well. Um, and can you be uh, genuinely modest if you are consuming and extremely um, made up and, and simply covered but not preserving the spirit of modesty. Um, so I think these are things that um, in, in our, I guess, contemporary age where companies and, and marketers realize that certainly there's uh, echoes of, of things to sell everywhere um, is something that you know, kind of comes up amongst the different milieus that, that we all look at. Um, so that was just what I wanted to sprinkle into our discussion. Um, you know one question um, that I had that or that it struck me that I could start by asking all of you, um, is this question, you know, uh, Rena, you started by asking about um, being religiously legible and what. Kind of comportment and dress, um, how it can be read and who's being read. Um, but I wondered, what about um, kind of other aspects of, of women's kind of physical realities and backgrounds uh, might play into this? Uh, body size, racial background, class background, ability to consume in, in these ways in the modesty market. Um, you know, what what do these abilities um, and these other kind of realities of women. you know, How do they impact how, they, how women can be read and this aspect of them
1: can be read? I think when we talk about embodiment um, and we think both about, it's partly a way of saying we don't only have to think about religious or spiritual practices as being something that just happens in the zone of thought. It's also embodied. People pray in particular positions, some faith traditions, have particular ways in which you pray, the stillness of sort of Northern Hemisphere, Protestant still prayerfulness is also learned. You know, no one is born knowing how to sit still in a pew. You learn it, it's a cultural learning. But when we think about embodiment, I think we also have to think about the actual bodies that we have and, and how those read. So both for a younger generation who, think that making changes under the skin is completely normal, whether it's having tattoos or permanent um, makeup tattooed on or plastic surgery, but also that some bodies have a greater or lesser facility for enacting acceptable versions of modesty if modesty is what you're trying to enact. Um, I've just finished working on a piece about, um, provocatively called, the the fat fat black Muslim body because what I discovered was, like any other fashion or style sector, there's a lot of judgment about body size and unobtainable beauty ideals and so on. And there's a critique, of course, that a lot of the social media only shows you the perfect face, which is true for all social media. Um, but that also bodies that are larger, that are curvaceous, that have bumps, don't necessarily fit some garments that are coded as modest in the same way. And I think you know, this is a new thing to to think about as well because it does point you directly to both the impossibility of certain ideals or the way that certain ideals are easier for some types of bodies and also the ways in which, as you said, women are involved in surveying and judging. And very often what I hear from the women that I speak to from different faith backgrounds is of trying to respect other women's modesty choices. You know, I might not feel comfortable wearing skinny jeans and a tunic that's to above the hip, like she does, but that's fine, I respect her choices or I respect their right to cover or not cover. But of course, women, as in your example, Leah, are always involved in being the surveyors of each other's modesty. And I think that the the hojab um, which was sort of big on early social media as well, which a lot of women you know, really didn't like, it was also compulsive viewing. And I think that modest fashion has the potential to be a conduit for conversation, for inclusion, for dialogue, and also to be a conduit for conflict and exclusion on the macro big scale and on the micro local, oh, she doesn't look so nice in that scale.
2: My a lot of my research has been on um, evangelical Christianity, so um, I'm quite interested in. Although I haven't written about this particularly in relation to embodiment or fashion, but I'm quite interested in, you know, what is acceptable uh, femininity for, say, a fairly conservative evangelical Christian uh, woman in, you know, maybe the UK or in the US, um, and. I was struck by Marian Maddox's work. She's an Australian scholar and she studied the um, Evangelical Hillsong Movement. Has anyone come mm. across that? Yeah, um, there's a huge church in London. Really, very, very interesting to go and visit if if you want a great participant observation <laughs> experience. But um, the, the, the form of um, evangelicalism that, 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 that this is, um, is a kind of like, charismatic sort of semi-Pentecostalism where um, it's like going to a rock concert. So there's this worship band on stage um, and there are very beautiful you know, women and men um, but, but dressed in a very specific, fashionable but covered um, kind of way. Um, and the women are pretty much all white um, and they have a kind of middle-class um, aesthetic and they they inculcate a certain kind of um, religious emotion amongst their. Um, their congregation, which involves, you know, getting people to respond emotionally to sort of, you know, to lively songs, getting them to dance, to quiet songs, getting them to sort of become very reflective. So they are very intentionally working to kind of manufacture certain religious emotions um, through what they're doing at the front and and then through... Um, what they're teaching the, the, the followers to do. Anyway, it, you know, it strikes me on this question of are certain bodies able to do this? You know, for them, it's, it's about mostly being white, it's about being middle class, um, and, uh, you know, it's about being modest, but actually not too modest, because you also have to look, you know, conventionally attractive. You have to, because they're an evangelical movement and they want people to join them. You know, you have to be able to bring your friends, and your friend would think, oh, yes, well, I could, I could be like these, these people. Um, and, you know, their life is kind of quite cool as well as being Christian." So, so it's an interesting sort of balance that they, they have to achieve, but all within the realm of sort of white, even, white middle-class evangelicalism. Thank
3: you. Um, so two different thoughts um, about the body. Um, one is as the economic aspect that we've all touched, but not fully touched. Um, is that, as I mentioned, sometimes to get modest clothing, you have to go to special seamstresses or to special shops. It's not what you're going to find at the local mall. So besides the fact that there are more religious-oriented malls, to wear the nice stuff, you would have to spend quite a lot of money. So there's definitely an elitistic um, aspect as well of being able to afford to wear nice stuff, but that if it's also modest, it's not as easily accessible. But the other thing that I wanted to bring into the conversation as well, thinking about um, the, the, the fat body that you um, thought about. So the next research project that I went to work on is um, what happens after these um, teenagers get married and, and, and actually get pregnant. Um, because within the um, Haredi community, um, within the first year of marriage, you're usually expected to have a child um, within a year. Um, so I very quickly moved um, from teenagers to, to women having children. Um, but when you think about the pregnant body as well, as another body that doesn't exactly stand in with fashion ideals, I was really, really interested to hear how um, women who are pregnant, or women after a few pregnancies, the marks on their bodies and what they do with that. And I was sometimes, um, so some of them struggle a lot to live up to those body ideals that are now definitely not attainable, probably impossible beforehand, but now even more so. Um, And um, one uh, particular um, um, kind of idea struck me as you were talking is that, Um, when women said to me um, that, um, this is actually a female doctor who I interviewed, and she said that she tells um, women that um, all of the um, stretch marks that she has on her body from all the children that she's had, and Israel the average is seven children um, for a Haredi woman, and she said, you know, all of your stretch marks are your children's pictures that they give to you. Mm -hmm. And she was teaching her at that moment to look at her body and at the transitions that it has, as she turns into a mother, um, as beautiful in a different way. But she had to kind of restructure that. I'm not sure if it worked for all of them. But the idea that you need to think about that in that way and to offer some sort of positive ideology to work with that stretching um, was really interesting to me.
0: Um, It reminds me of this. sheikh who's a social media sheikh and imam who's very popular um on online in his sermons and one of them is about um real modesty and how um you know the point of of the hijab and and modest dressing is is partly you know part of islam's message of social justice and that if you're poor or that if you are not willowy or if you um if you just don't fit a traditional you know, beauty ideal, whether it was in the seventh century or today, you know, modesty is meant to cloak all of that. Um, And so in a way, you know, modest fashion that doesn't fit everyone is really um, kind of more about fashion than about religion, Um, which I thought um, was interesting that there's kind of whole theological arguments um, about fashion and capitalism um, that exist, you know, completely um,
1: on different territory. Um, and there's always been a strong anti-fashion element. I mean, certainly within Muslim fashion and Islamic fashion and in, and in other cultures as well, which is precisely that you shouldn't be. You know, it should be more socially egalitarian. You shouldn't be buying into consumer culture or Western capitalist consumer culture. Um, of course, at the moment, modest fashion is on trend. So it's really easy to go shopping. So everybody has to stockpile. It'll go off again.
0: Um, that's imminently possible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about um, and and because I think it's you know the, what we've all lived in the last year or two the Me Too movement um, and the women's marches and this kind of uh, very politically engaged feminism that we've seen emerge as a kind of response to you know, structural. Um, predation against women in the workplace uh, and um, you know the rise of populism authoritarian populism in in the West which is um, you know quite hostile to women in its own way um, and and has kind of elicited movements of, of different kinds you know do we see this being uh, embodied in fashion I mean there's a kind of Resurgence of old style. I mean, they call them boyfriend jeans or high waisted or, or boots, um, uh, kind of assertive fashion that may be very 80s. But you know, what are is is that what we're seeing? And these movements that um, that are very feminine, um, but I think are very much responsive or reflective of women um, feeling very vulnerable and unsafe. Even Western women in the workplace, politically, in the moment. Um, you know, how are we seeing that? Manifest in, in clothes and,
2: and fashion. Do you remember Slut Walk? Um, mm. I think around two thousand and twelve. I mean that makes me think of that because so that was actually it. So it was this. Um, I think it started in Canada, um, and it was it was originally a protest organized again um, about a and I forget the exact incident, but it was um, some kind of incident where a woman had been told that she needed to dress modestly to to. to uh, make sure that she wouldn't be attacked walking across campus, um, and and feminists got very angry about this, and so they organised this this march, and then it became global and it happened in various places. So I went to the one in London, um, and you know the the style of dress. It well, it was partly it was to do with with reclaiming. Um, you know the image of the the, the slut, so um, the image of the you know kind of sexually liberated woman. But actually, it attracted a huge range of, of, of feminists. Uh, you know, including quite a lot of Muslim feminists um, and religious feminists of, of various kinds who who didn't you know dress in this kind of slutty um, fashion and wore you know hoodies or or whatever or, or whatever else. But that's a really clear example. Of course, then Me Too kind of came after um, after that, um, and I. Th- I think, I mean, and I, I wrote a book about um, the resurgence of feminism in, in Britain called *Reclaiming the F Word*. Um, it was out now, gosh, 2010, um, so quite quite a while ago. But it's but it's seems clear to me that feminism or third-wave feminism, as we may say, has expanded. Um, the categories of who is included as a feminist. Um, so, you know, now includes men, um, generally now includes um, trans people, now includes people identifying as non-binary, binary, of course, which is a new development as well. So, um, somehow it seems to broaden the category of, you know, who can present themselves as a feminist. And I think that that's, that's a good thing. I don't, I, I'd be interested to hear my um, fellow panelists' view on, on that. It's a really interesting
3: question, because um, within the Haredi community that I've done a lot of work with, in general, feminism has not been a term that people really use. Um, But I would say that recently, some are starting to feel comfortable with it. And it's really, really, really interesting. And I think that the only reason why you can have Haredi feminism, which is not a term that is used quite often, is because of the expanding notions of feminism. And the idea and the images that we have had of a feminism, when it it was one model, then they couldn't fit. They just couldn't fit, and it was so far away that they couldn't bridge the gap. Um, In the progressive and liberal Jewish community, definitely so. In the modern orthodox, definitely so. But in the Haredi community, they've kept their walls. And feminism has been a terrible word for a really long time. Just this morning, I got an email um, from somebody telling me that she's putting together a um, um, some sort of reader for um, ultra orthodox women, and she's taking my paper on modesty and showcasing it there for feminism. Yeah. And and I was on the one hand very happy, um, but I you know just happy that they're having a reader for Haredi, um women on feminism. But I was also kind of interested by um, what type of work we do as scholars and how that affects the fields in which we study. Um, and studying modest fashion, like I'm kind of going to you, Irina, but saying, it's also a way um, for both the Jewish and Muslim women that you've studied to also um, look at themselves and say, oh yeah, we're, we're cool. We are like, we're hip. people write, fashion professors write about us. So I guess we must be cool,
1: right? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the very, because when I started doing this research, I mean, I've been sort of working in this area for two decades now. When I started researching on religion and fashion, just putting those two words in the same ten- sentence often produced hysteria or disbelief. Um, And now, if you Google modest fashion, you'll you'll get taken straight to the selling pages of high street chains, because it's become a fashion term as well. Now, on one hand, I think this is a good thing, because I think it's better for people to have choices for what they want. Of course, I don't think shopping will bring about world peace, and I don't think that consumer culture is going to liberate us all, but I do think that, especially for people who've grown up as part of a majority culture, which would be a sort of a nominally Christianish, secularish culture here, or a majority Muslim culture, if you've grown up in a Muslim majority culture country, it's very hard to imagine how profoundly alienating it is to find your habit, your community background, disregarded by prevailing cultural forms, whether that's the media, the theatre or shopping and consumer culture, which is a prevailing cultural form. So on one hand, I think it's helpful. On the other hand, yes, you know, I mean you joked earlier about, you know, you won't tell us the long saga of your ethics processes for getting access to those those young women. Um, but you know, I get approached by brands more and more now. And I'm very careful about saying I will share what I already know that is in the public domain. I'm not doing sort of paid consultancy as such, although I could probably have quite a nicely paid sideline at the moment, but that would too much, you know, muck up the area of of the work that, uh, that I want to do. But what I'm doing, and what many of us are doing, is also a validating exercise, which can be very meaningful, and one is, I'm grateful for that personally, for the women whose communities i'm researching it also can have an economic benefit to that sector of of the fashion industry um for this exhibition contemporary muslim fashion in the de young when we had our um symposium Oslem senator who's an expert on islamic marketing came and spoke and she said you know events like this this museum exhibition is part of the validating legitimating processes we we are part of the world that we live in and we become part of the thing that we research, whether or not it's our own culture. Those are some of the difficult balances, I think, um, that, that we resolve. I've gone off onto a slightly different tangent, but we should maybe yeah. open now. Um,
0: can I just drop one thing? Of in course. course. Do that? Because you made me think, um, well, you mentioned legitimation. Um, and you know, working in the Middle East, um, you know i 've been for twenty years worked on the Middle East and have been waiting and waiting um, you know would the Middle East ever have its own vogue um, and eventually, eventually, there was one and it emerged a couple of years ago, and it 's called Vogue Arabia. Um, but I think it's um, important to sort of look at it um, and its origins as part of the political economy of the Middle East and you know do um, fairly uh, Authoritarian regimes use fashion increasingly as soft power because they know how it resonates in the West. So to have a Vogue Arabia, to have uh, fashion shows in the Gulf, um, on the one hand, is is quite interesting and important because really it's it's the Gulf fashion buyer that has propped up couture fashion for the last mm-hmm. twenty years. I mean that's just a reality, um, and I think it must be you know very important for those women to see. Um, what they spend kind of reflected um, in their own milieu, uh, but at the same time, you know, it's highly orchestrated and managed and very often deployed as a kind of reflection of, um, of, of regimes as having kind of values that make them palatable as objects of engagement, military, political for the West. So, um, you know, we have catwalks, we have Vogue Arabia, you know, we are um, we are good allies and we're not, um, because increasingly, you know, can you be a good ally if your values and your positions about women are so diametrically opposed? So I think there's a there's a um, you know there's a structural economy behind behind all of this as well that's
1: um, that's can there. Can I just pitch in one more? I'm so sorry. Yes, and no, we're all getting questions. Speak, we promise. And then I'll shut up. But you're spot on. I mean, fashion diplomacy okay. is is growing. Museum exhibitions, catwalk shows, etc., modest fashion fairs. Arab Fashion Week, absolutely. This is part of saying we're on the world stage in this way. And I think for all that on one hand, I think, you know, I always give the example, you know, I like sparkly socks like I'm wearing tonight. Well, they've been in fashion for the last year and I'm stockpiling them because they won't be available next year. If you want to dress modestly in certain ways, then it's great if there's more things in the shop for you. But the other less welcome byproduct of the legitimating um, impact of this work is if the increase in those garments then also becomes another source of pressure because, look, it's easy for you to wear a bikini, you can buy it in Marks and Spencers, or look, it's easy for you to wear a longer shirt or, you know, looser trousers because there are so many there. So, you know, we are all constrained and compelled by the market and the people around us in different ways.
4: I'll shut up now. Um, So on the idea of ownership, you're talking about the slut walks. On the other side of that form of ownership, there's also um, the group that's known as the Neshata Taliban, the Taliban women in Israel, who go to the other extreme where they take ownership of their religion and their faith as, um, as, like you talked about the Besyakov girls who, um, the girl who says that she doesn't want to have the responsibility of, of um, men's faith in dressing modestly. These women really take this idea of modest dressing as their, their religion and and the way that they express their faith. Um, how would you how how do you analyze that kind of idea where it's not beauty but it's um, but it's taking the religious dressing to the utmost extreme and it's the the whole way of showing their religious identity, but it's in an extremely um I I, yeah I find I find them extremely confusing and I've been reading about them for a long time and I don't quite know how to understand them.
3: (laughs) Should I answer? Yeah, um, thank you. Um, an ethnographic story. When I was at Beis which is the flagship of the Haredi community, um, on my way one day, I saw a group of Neshota Taliban. Now, Taliban women in the, in the Jewish context means that they look um, more Muslim in the way that we would usually imagine it, fully black, um, with only the eyes open. And I came um, to Besiakov and I said to the teacher who I went to her classroom on a usual basis, and I said, what do you think? And she said, oh, they've been trying to come and speak to our students. We have never let them come in. They're extreme. And I, and I say that because when, when different people employ the term extreme, we mean very different things. Mm. And it's always a judgmental commentary on the people who are more to the right or to the left of us. So as an ethnographer, I feel like that's the only answer that I need to give, right? We use that as another signal to say, oh, my modesty is fine, it's not a big deal. It's them that are extreme. And if we go back to the picture that I started with, on you know the burkini and the bikini, and they're both <laughs> judging each other, I think that what's common to what all of us are talking about is this visible judgment and surveillance um, that we have, and you know, my individual opinion about the Taliban is not of importance to hear. But to understand that we're living in a space in which we're constantly judging each other—who is more right, and who is more left, and who is more extreme—and many times the body and the female body is at the centre of that.
2: Uh, thank you, and I hope this is not completely off the wall. But on the question of religious visibility we've kind of concentrated on sexuality. There's also religious visibility in terms of power. And I was ordained as one of the earliest ministers in the Church of Scotland through at a time when those of us, those women who were ordained, felt that they had to um, almost disappear, but certainly dress
1: more like their male counterparts. Um, Dangly earrings were a no-no. Now that has changed. What hasn't changed is that we still have a raft of males who get into pulpits or behind altars um, or otherwise in other religions dressed to the nines. Can I? We did a wonderful session of Faith and Fashion a couple of years ago called uh, What to Wear When You Work for God. And um, one of the things that came up uh, from uh, the wonderful Sally Hitchner who is a, an, an Anglican priest was that you know, young, young men who've joined the clergy are allowed to be dandies and are sort of smiled upon by especially older ladies in the congregation if they look a bit foppish with their, I'm stereotyping, <laughs> with, with their sort of patterned waistcoat and their fob watch etc. Whereas women, you know, I know a number of of women clergy who will get told off if their skirt shows their knees when they sit down or the dangly earrings and so on. And I think in a way it mirrors the challenges that certainly in the West women have with workwear generally. If you think about, I mean we're seeing shoulder pads now with the 80s revival, but that was the first generation of women in the boardroom having to work out how do you look senior at work but not too masculine? So, you know, a lot of those power suits for the power dressing were actually worn with pencil skirts and court shoes. Nowadays, you might wear the, you know, the Hillary Clinton pantsuit with trousers. And I think when women enter a profession that's been traditionally male-dominated, there are a number of ways in which their access to that power is constrained and contained, and you're absolutely right.
5: Hi, oh gosh, hi. Um, First of all, thank you all. Um, Second, I wanted to ask, Um, So we've kind of talked about um, how religion has, I mean, to different extents, like one set of values and modern consumerist society has another set of values and how they kind of come together. Um, But I wanted to ask about sometimes when religion does kind of prioritize um, the appearance. and I mean, my experience is mostly in Judaism, but um, with the religious um, emphasis and almost imperative on getting married and like finding someone attracted to you um is kind of it is does become a religious duty to beautify and it i guess it's not the secular i mean it is there's secular influences but it's not the secular world telling you to do that it's very much you need to do this to fulfill god's commandments of having a family etc so i wanted to ask about that in different faiths and like mm-hmm. that. That's
2: my question. Do you do um yeah, I mean, I've got a parallel story from from my PhD, uh, which was on evangelicals negotiating gender, where um, I was I was observing a church where there are a lot of young unmarried women who really really wanted to be married, so they were kind of in their twenties, um, and the church leaders used to kind of jokingly refer to them as babes, and used to kind of construct them, you know, as these sort of you know, on the one hand needing to be modest, etc., but on the other hand as these, you know, available women that they could, um, you know, metaphorically kind of parade around um, the other churches they knew where there might be single young men. So they used to say, oh, you know, what, what about um, Anne in our church? Um, you know, who, what men, which men do we know that may be interested in her? Um, so, you know, and she, you know, whilst Dan had to be kind of simultaneously modest and also available and express interest in, in, in meeting men, whether or not she might be interested in that anyway. So it's really, it's like a tightrope, isn't it? You have to walk. And and, um, and no wonder that, you know, certainly Christian young women do ex- exhibit a lot of concern about their appearance often because they're, they've got these ideals that are often very contradictory to uphold, and I'm sure that is the case for women from a whole range of religions. Do you want to?
3: Yeah, I'm happy to continue on that because I think marriage is really very essential, and I think you're correct 100%. There's a transition, and I think, Rini, when you started speaking about, it doesn't always stay the same. We need to look differently at different stages. And um, when I was um, doing my ethnography um, in the classroom, I, as, the, as the year went on, I suddenly noticed that there were some girls who started to wear makeup. Now, speaking about surveillance and guidance, in general in Yaakov, they're not permitted to wear makeup. It's only the older girls as they approach marriage that they can start putting on makeup. Now, I say this because it's extremely interesting. The teachers, there would be usually one teacher who would check every morning that everybody's wearing their skirts where they're supposed to be and everything is. But at some point, there is going to be a very silent contract between that teacher and some students that they're starting to put on makeup because they need to you know, better their appearances because they're now, I say this carefully, on the market in terms of, of marriage. And that transition is an embodied signaling that I'm now looking To get married and it's not something that's done here it's also done with a lot of phone calls and a lot of matchmaking but it's also an embodied practice of now I can practice makeup
1: I think that um, for for women as for young men you know trying to find a partner is is a life phase for some of us it's a life phase that recurs Um, and that brings with it generically a heightened concern about appearance, about how you're communicating, about does he or she or they like me, etc. Do I fit in? But also when that's overlaid with a religious mandate, that either you ought to be doing this or you need to attract the right sort of person. And that can be for families that are fairly uh, secular in their outlooks, but immersed in a religious or religio-ethnic culture and community so there are there are all those things about signaling and sometimes it might be you know when you're at somebody else's wedding you're particularly on display or all the aunties are looking or so on and social media then allows another another way of that happening and of course as you say there are these life phases so i know from um, a couple of um, orthodox jewish women that i spoke to about uncovering who had stopped, they had covered their hair when they first got married, and then after a while they stopped. So they still dressed modestly-ish, partly because their children were at Jewish school, etc. but they were dressing differently. And they said on reflection they wouldn't have thought it at the time, um, but you know, they were, when they were at college and they were dressing more modestly, they were wanting to signal to potential partners the type of Jewish home that they would be looking to create. And I think, it's when it's consciously about religious cultures, it gives a different overlay to what large parts of the world, particularly the young population, are sort of all doing without necessarily naming. I think... Was it you? Yes. Uh, thank you. I'm puzzled, in a way, by this whole idea of modesty. What is it? Who is it for? Why be modest? What does it mean? And what about men's modesty?
3: Shall I
5: go first on this? Yeah.
3: Um, it, it's a wonderful question, and I think that the question is, is, a, is a serious one, because what modesty means, and all of those questions that you ask are something that changes all the time. Um, one of the things I found really, really interesting during my work is that today, when we think about modesty, we think about clothes. When you look in the Bible, when teachers are trying to teach students about being modest, so I'm sure that many of the people in the room will know, but the place where it talks about modesty in the Bible, it says that it says you should be modest with God. And it says nothing about clothes. And it also says nothing about gender. It's a generic um, idea that's about being modest with God, whether you're female or male. And I think that one thing that's really, really interesting is, and this is something that I'm interested as an anthropologist, is that you look at a particular moment in time and ask yourself, what are people understanding and practicing as modesty at a particular moment in time? So for me, um, the, the teenagers that I was speaking to were interpreting it as something that was about God and not about men. But they also interpreted it as something that wasn't just about the body. You can be modest in the way you think. You can be modest in the way you talk. You can be modest in the way you sing. It's a whole thing um, that, if you, in my understanding and my analysis of it, they were trying to um, make modesty um, legible in whatever it is that they were doing. So instead of it being just at what you wear, they were trying to make it an overarching thing, and they also were trying to make it a mission. Because as I started off by talking about, turning modesty into female piety If it's just about what you wear, there isn't much to go in terms of piety, but turning it into a life mission that you can realize in so many different aspects of your life turns it into a broader category that one can achieve at different times in their life differently.
0: I think that's a wonderful question, and um, I think it um, certainly reflects what we've been talking about um, going through phases, and um, I think modesty is, is, is a kind of word that distills and sort of catches other things that that we mean by it. And I think, especially in the context that I work in, um, I think modesty is yearned for or becomes a kind of code for talking about ethics and other kinds of justice. Um, So if a government is uh, very corrupt and there's a kind of violence in that corruption because it robs lots of people of dignity in their lives um, and it's kind of, it's kind of relished, or, or that kind of lack of ethics or injustice is reflected in the immodesty um, of the display of wealth or power, then being excessively modest as a kind of protest to that um, is, is something we see everywhere. I mean, I see it in Nigeria right now. Uh, but so it's really, um, I think it's really about justice. Um, and is, is a power, you know, a body, a government, a state, um, using its power justly. Um, and I think that there is a modesty that, you know, all religions kind of ascribe to just power um, and, and the rule of the state. So I think so much of um, kind of movements that kind of take modesty and, and conflate it with all of these different things are kind of yearning for a sort of fundamental justice. And so it kind of these two concepts kind of get distilled into one another when really... Um, kind of what's being sought is not modesty so much as kind of dignity. Um, And these things are all kind of part of a code of ethics that um, may be publicly reflected in simply modesty.
3: So I think that we need to start, um, sadly, Um, we're going to uh, have to finish the formal part um, of this evening. Um, I learned so much from all of the um, lovely, lovely women who've come from um, all over to be with us here. Um, it's really, and I think that ending with a question so broad as that really helps us leave with questions and not with answers because these questions about women, religion, body, embodiment, and religious visibility, which I wish we would have done a little bit more on, but, you know, we, um, we, we started a conversation and I think that leaving um, with questions is, is, is a sign of, 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 of real curiosity. Um, and just to finish with a few announcements, um, Rena, you said that there's lists for faith and fashion on the tables. Um, please feel free if you're interested in faith and fashion, get on Rina's list and you'll hear about all the awesome stuff she does. In terms of Wolf, um, I want to invite, there's some people here that are part of the Gender and Religion Reading Group. I'm happy to see all of you. Um, and we have on February 6th, Women, Religion and Intersectionality coming up. Whoever wants to come, that's February 6th. And something that we did not talk about, and I would like to invite you to as well, We will have a talk about religion and law um, next um, month. Um, So look at our term card. Look at that. You're always invited to Wolf Events. We try um, to bring interesting academic discussions um, to students and scholars, but also to the public. Um, So you're all um, more than invited to stay with us, ask questions, chat. And it's pretty easy to find all of us online if you would like to do so. Thank you.